Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. My name is Todd Brian Backus, and today I'm joined by John John Johnson. Hello. Our GM for Apocalypse World. Uh, John John is a multidisciplinary theater artist and TTRPG veteran, and today we'll be talking about theater, tabletop, and how to GM a good game. Um, so, John John, can you talk to me a little bit about your background as a theater artist and what that means for you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I went and studied theater at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. And uh, one of the things while I was there, I was like, I want to learn all the languages um, because one day I want to direct and I want to be able to speak to everyone in a language they understood rather than forcing everyone to speak my language. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, I actually, uh, you know, I did not finish college. I, I had to drop out for financial reasons. And then while I was working at Bertucci's in Tyson's Corner, I had someone, you know, I, I had helped a little bit with the setting up of first stage in Tyson's Corner as it was coming into existence since uh, their founding artistic director was my high school theater teacher. And so uh, I wound up there for the first read where someone couldn't attend. I read for his part since I was there by sort of happenstance. And uh, a week later, the stage manager came into my bar and was like, hey, do you want that role? We fired that guy. (laughs) It was a play we had done in high school, so I I already knew the play. I was familiar with it. So I was like, you know what? Like, why not? Let's do it. And that thus began my professional theater career back in 2008. Um, So I've been working in theater for the past 12 years. And... um, Everything from you know, I've I've directed, I've I've mostly acted, but I'm swinging more into the directing field now. I've written a couple plays, uh, none of them produced on on major stages outside of Fringe, and a couple readings, but I'm very proud of them. And a lot of my work has come as a musician and like sort of composer, like actor musician, actor muso. Uh, so a lot of mm-hmm. I, I'm pretty well known, I think, for being that guy what plays the violin on stage. Um, yeah, and so that's that's been my theatrical background. Uh, more and more, I've been pushing more into directing. Um, recently, having directed uh, Yellow Face at Silver Spring Stage, assistant directed Museum Twenty Forty with Four Six One Five Theater Company, and uh, I've been a couple done a couple online readings. Um, the Bodies of Vessel by Britt Willis, Britt Willis recently, and uh, uh, Edward the Second with Brave Spirits. So trying to sort of been sort of figuring out Zoom readings and like what I like and don't like about them. <laughs> um, um, I remember when we were just starting to record Apocalypse World, uh, you had this lighting rig set up uh, in front of your Zoom station because you had just been involved in a reading and you were trying to figure out some of that. And that was really nifty. Uh, What was it? Uh, Dance on the Railroad with Adventure Theater by David Henry Huang. So it was fun. I got to meet David Henry Huang. (laughs) Awesome. Um, And now I know that uh, you and Percy are both uh, from the D.C. theater scene. And as someone who lives in Portland, Maine now and was most familiar with the New York scene, because that's where I did a bunch of work. um, Can you talk a little bit about that um, and those dynamics and anything that you think is unique about the D.C. theater scene? The D.C. theater scene is something something I, I love about it and I've, I've talked about this with a lot of my friends is that it is a surprisingly expansive community but with a small community feel you know there there is a, a pretty definite rift between equity and non-equity both in terms of houses and personnel for the most part but like I feel like everyone knows everyone you know or at least knows enough so like uh it feels like a small community, and I feel like we're, we're pretty good about sharing personnel, passing people along. There's a, a decent amount of resource sharing. I want there to be more, but there's you know there's some pretty good resource sharing. 
It is it is one that is evolving and growing. Um and it's I think recently it's hit a lot of growing pains with um with uh you know, you looking at the emergence of uh we're watching you white American theater and oh my god, finally. And then I was like, because 'cause I've been I've been someone who's been yelling about, you know, diversity, equity, inclusivity and belonging for many much of my career because you know it's it's been marked by several events that are like you know kind of like uh, racist and i'm like "Mm." and and at a certain point i stopped being quiet about it and have been you know speaking up on Mm -hmm. social media and then now it's gotten to the point where happily happily and finally like i'm speaking up in the rehearsal rooms being like that's not cool um and mm-hmm. I, I think I, I have somewhat of a reputation for typically being pretty gentle and understanding and kind about it, which is a double-edged sword because now, you know, like now people are sort of coming to me unsolicited being like, I need advice on like like my racism. And I'm like, I'm not here to absolve you. You know, I'm not. It's also really, really like, can you please do some research before asking me to educate you <laughs> like that? That's a lot of like mm-hmm. bad insistence now and making sure I'm setting up healthy boundaries for myself. Um, yeah, so that's, that's the DC yeah. theater scene. I think we've hit a really, really hard learning curve where a lot of people need to get get educated. And, you know, they're going to be like, oh, my God, it's happening so fast. But I'm going to keep gently pointing out that it's been happening this whole time. You're just behind. And mm-hmm. so it's not that it's yeah. steep or hard. You just need to you weren't listening before. And now you need to catch up because we're going to leave you behind otherwise. Mm-hmm. So that's fun, mm-hmm. um, you know, like because I, I look at the I read the demands recently for we're watching you at American theater, and I was simultaneously elated and exhausted because I was like, oh my god, we we BIPOC folk have so much work to do now to because no one's going to hold white American theater accountable. <laughs> <laughs> and except for us now and like we because I, I don't trust them to hold themselves accountable just yet so it's like okay well oof, we have a lot of work to do and I'm already exhausted for it but here we go <laughs> like, so that's where that's how I feel about DC theater scene mm-hmm. right now no I think that's entirely fair and I think that I think there's a lot of people doing some soul searching who thought they were doing the work before and clearly have not been doing the work uh, and I think that it's important for people to recognize what they have been doing, which has been good or bad, um, but also how everyone could be doing much, much better. Yeah, and it's <laughs> it's it's going to be a lot of work for everyone. And again, I, I am excited for it. Like I am, I am very curious to meet this next iteration of the DC theater community and how it will have grown from all this. I am like not cautiously optimistic. I'm like optimistic but also prepared for it not to change very much in which case i'll be angrily optimistic <laughs> but like um i don't know I, I i have faith that the community can change and grow and i'm going to keep yelling at all of mm. us to continue to do so well and i think that um like this all happening right now when everything has to be shut down like when we can no longer safely gather um being able to take this time not to just like moan about not being able to do theater the way that we've traditionally done theater but taking time to actually say like hey we have a lot of time on our hands let's think about how we can do better like we are all currently a bit removed from the grind of trying to pay rent on our theater spaces and like making sure like most theaters had already announced their seasons or were about to announce their seasons um when COVID 19 hit 
um, the states as hard as it did. And like, uh, I'm hopeful, I'm not certain, but I'm hopeful um, that these conversations and this time of uh, not being able to do theater the way that we were planning on doing theater uh, forces people to reckon with um, the ways that they could be doing better. Oh, yeah. It's also a testament to the theater community, right? Where it's like when we have like when we're not working ourselves to death in, you know, these very low paid, sometimes unsafe environments like we have all this energy and all this power. And so, you know, it's a joke among my friend group to say that, you know, the revolution needs production managers. Right. And like um, when all these theater folk have the energy and drive to do something change happens and that's that's something that i want to keep harping on people as well is that like we you know you look at what happened up at the flea in, in new york right where it's like the company banded together and made demands and now hopefully you know change is coming and i think i think everyone in the theater mm-hmm. community i think i keep pointing people to the flea and from dc being like look that's what we can do we have that power let's let's start changing it and let's stop being so underfoot. Um, that's DC theater community. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, segueing from there, um, can you talk a little bit about your experience as a GM? Um, uh, maybe some of the systems that you've played in, um, how long you've been doing it, uh, what are some of the things that you really enjoy about that? Yeah, so uh, for me, I've been I've been GMing or MCing for like about four years. You know, I, I got into D&D like way back when, like I, I want to say in like elementary school when we played an after school program. And then like at a summer camp, like so I was playing and it, it, you had all those pre-made character cards with all the cool art. I want to say it was like an advanced D&D and we couldn't make heads or tails of it for the most part because we were little kids without adults telling us what all the numbers meant. Um, and then mm-hmm. later again in summer camp, you know, we, we pl- I was playing a Ravenloft campaign that I jumped into somewhere in the middle. So I was completely lost. But they were like, hey, you mm-hmm. like this. You should play. And like, I'm a paladin. I don't know what that means. <laughs> and so I was just like, I'm going to hit something with my sword. I can apparently cast mass psychic drain. What is it? I don't know what's going on. So, you know, there was I was thrown into the tabletops like pretty young and then like has slowly worked to figure it out because it was a nice challenge. Then I kind of dropped it for a long time because I was like, oh, I got to focus on adult things. And uh, so I was like, oh, man, I need to focus on like school and work and etc. Because like I had, to, I had to pay my way through college for the most part. Then it was like a couple years back. My friend was like, do you want to play some dungeon world? And I was like, sure, sounds great. And I was like, oh, this is like really simplified D&D that focuses on the storytelling and I was so charmed by the storytelling aspect and the fail to the fail to improve system that I was like, oh, this is delightful. And so, you know, it, we only played a few sessions, but it was enough for me to turn that like sort of initial seedlings into a full novel on my own time that I still I'm still working on just been like because I was like oh man like I go back and forth I'm like oh my god it's so like cliche and passe to turn your campaign into a novel oh everyone does that and I'm like but but they're all so different and unique and I want to read everyone's novels based off their campaign so like I should do it and so and I, I thought you know I thought the DM built a really delightful simple world and was really giving towards the backstories that we as the characters had created. And that was like, oh, 
right collaborative storytelling is something i'm super into as you know having been a, a, a you know a divisor in dc theater being you know someone who loves creating with people collaboratively and from scratch so i was running different little one shots here and there and then it was actually with when I was still with Flying V back when I was a company member, they did something called the Awesome Thon, which was like 24 hours of programming. And I was tapped to do the like late night D&D. So I built a uh, Dungeon World session that was for like... They were like, we don't know how many people you're going to have. Like, we didn't do signups or anything. So I was like, okay, I will prep 20 character sheets so people have, like, if I get, like, four people to come at three in the morning, then, like, you know, we'll have, they'll have a nice array of things to choose from, and I'll do all the setup work for them. So I built, like, 20 characters. And then 17 people showed up. So one of my first big DMing experiences was DMing a room of 17 people. I was like, oh, my goodness. This is, oh. But from there, you know, um, a couple people were like, I really liked your DM style. You know, it's quirky. It's a little, you know, it's fun. And it's like... And so they're like, we would love if you ran a Dungeon World campaign for us. And so I grabbed a couple people. And, like, because I'm, like, like almost psychotically inclusive, I'm like, let's immediately go into Western Marches. Like, no traditional campaign. Like, it's episodic, and whoever's available, you know, is they're deployed on that mission, right? And so yeah. I built one of the first facets of what became the John John Shared Universe, right? It was, I called it the Six Kingdoms of Yulia. Yulia, who shows up in our Apocalypse World game, right? <laughs> um, but so Yulia has been there for a long time for me. Um, Yulia, six Kingdoms of Yulia, and I, I actually built the kingdoms, the six kingdoms, based on the six colors of magic, or rather the five colors of magic and the oh, one yeah. colorless. So like you had the swamp, you had the island, you had the forest and the mountain and the plains. And I was like, since I'm a, a queer BIPOC creator, the world was filled with queer POC. <laughs> like, to as much mm-hmm. as I could, because I was like, this is something I find sorely lacking in fantasy that I consume. Like, I was like, I love Lord of the Rings, but it's like, the closest thing you got to people of color is orcs. <laughs> and I was like, and I feel some kind of way about that. Yep. You know, I'm playing, yep. I'm playing Skyrim right now, and I'm like, man, you can't marry any men of color. The closest thing you can marry to a man of color is an orc so i married an orc <laughs> and i was like fine mm-hmm. you know so i i'm i'm always very i dislike that <laughs> about fantasy so i was like well i can be the change i see mm-hmm. and so that six kingdoms of Yulia was filled to the brim with uh, queer poc and i tried to make you know a very sex positive world so you know people was like mm-hmm. you know not like explicit but just like hey i want to seduce this bartender and then i'm like cool you get something they actually share some information with you or spill it like you know in the in the post-coital talk and you get some information so like and sort of like and like if people weren't interested in that I'm like cool it's there if you want it but like I'm not going to force you into having sex with my NPCs you know that's also kind of weird but building a sex positive world building a queer friendly world and I was like this is very rejuvenating for me and so then from there I went on to build um, what is called the Shepherds of Cathan which is uh, still ongoing about two year old Western Marches campaign using D&D 5e and that began as an experiment where I was like I've never DM 5e so here I'm going to run a one shot maybe two shot and let's see if it works and then it just went it just grew up from there and I was like great like I look back at the Facebook group that I used to schedule and I'm like well it even says there like this little experiment that might be one or two shots I'm like oh we are at shot like 170 now <laughs> and it's like Ooh. 
because <laughs> of just massive scheduling. And then like that's impressive. I pulled in a bunch of other people, so we rotate DMs, and then we like split up the world so that everyone has their like everyone's running storylines. We have showrunners running individual characters and making sure that those stories are being developed. So it's a lot of collaborative work and a lot of yes ending. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's my my tabletop role playing game experience. You know, the the big ones are Dungeon World and Five E. I mean, I was really impressed because I got to sit in on our session zero for Apocalypse World. And um, as someone who has only played with a couple of different people um, and has only listened to a couple of different DMs really like start from scratch, it was really, really inspiring getting to listen to you um, setting up the world of the game um, that we played um, and that we'll get back to next week. Uh, on the next episode of Dungeons and Dramaners. Um, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the specifics there for you about this, like Devisey uh, collaborative storytelling, because I just thought it was really cool um, getting to hear the very gentle um, way you introduced things that we could or couldn't have stories about, um, depending on the feeling of the group um, and how you made that a really open invitation um, for people to talk about, like, what is the game that we want to play um, and how will we play it? So if you could talk a little bit about that. It seems to me um, so clearly from a devising background, Percy and I were, like, messaging each other in the chat, like, oh, this is whatever game should be. This is, like, how theater should work. This is so cool. Um, so if you can talk a little bit about that and what, like, brought you to that structure because um, I thought it was just like a master class. Oh, thank you. Um, so it began with those the aforementioned Dungeon World and D&D campaign I was mentioning is that I have, in the tabletop world, I have now like played and DM'd and been DM'd by so many different people and also having done a lot of devising and a lot of very collaborative storytelling in the theater world, it's uh, for me it's a lot about managing and balancing expectations because that's where you know we, that's where you get people to buy into your world and also challenge it which is something i'm always interested in you know like i want people to challenge my ideas and that's and that sort of like comes from my directing philosophy of decolonizing the director position where it's like i don't want to hold all the power and so in this case i am less interested in like like I want to tell a story, but I don't want to map it all out because I only have a singular viewpoint and a singular lens. And sort of the strength of collaboration is that we have so many different lenses viewing the same sort of lump of clay. Mm-hmm. And it, for me, it's less about the finished product at the end. It's like, what is this story going to be? That's the exciting part, not the finished story. And so I love getting other people's viewpoints and perspectives. I, I love asking what people want out of this, you know? So, like, even if I were the person casting a show or casting a devising show, everyone's going to have a different viewpoint on what they want the show to be, you know? And I think that's the same with the tabletop game. It's like, some people really want, you know, just to have the railroads down and to be taken along on a story, and, like, I can do that. If that's what the group had decided, they were like, no, we really want you to steer then I would have been like, okay, there is a plot and we're going to follow it. And I will put in mechanisms to keep everything sort of on that straight and narrow. But I'm, I'm very inspired by people. And, you know, like I, I want, and I am at my best when I'm collaborating. So I think I did that in session zero and in session one, where I was like, here's the skeleton of the world I've built. There's just a little bit of information about all these places. 
and then because I'm mostly interested in seeing what people latch on to. And so, you know, um, um, <laughs> uh, T latched onto um, the the Maitre D class and the the sort of that that a uh, whole world. Uh, I can't even remember what I called it now <laughs> in the game, but it's like, the, you know, the, it's in the metro car area, and they turn metro cars into restaurants and, and clubs and the like. Mm-hmm. And so she took that and built Vector, and Z had their Zier's own metro car, and I was like, oh, okay, so this is fantastic. So. Mm-hmm. And that's also the secret. I had to do no work. Like I just set something up, mm-hmm. and someone ran with it. I'm going great. Like now, it's um as as one of my friends uh, who is a, an excellent DM says, it's all it's all about hooks and knives from people's backstories. And so it's like, oh, you've given me hooks, you've given me knives, and so I don't need to force slam you into a story of my making. You've planted a seed, and all I need to do is nurture it. You know. So now mm-hmm. that's why Vector Story becomes one of like. Z is very suspicious of anyone who is, comes from Z's past, you know, and, and mm-hmm. Z is also worried that people are trying to take Z's business, you know. So it's like, ooh, ooh. so trying to like it's 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 more interesting to me to see what a character finds important and working with mm-hmm. that. Um, and so and so that's that's how I build. And then the session zero safety mechanisms, you know, we talk we go back to session zero. It's because I value everyone's collaboration and because I value the people who are playing, I want to make sure that they are in a place where they can have fun. And getting hurt is no fun. <laughs> um, you know, right. as as an actor, I know all about transference, right? I have been in roles where it's like, this character has seeped into my psyche because I'm living in them. And I know how damage, mm-hmm. how joyous that can be, but also how damaging that can be. So how do we build safety mechanisms? Because like, you know, we talk about sexual assault, you know, and it's like, that is triggering for so many people, you know? And I was like, and I was also annoyed at, you know, how often in fantasy and in like sci-fi, it's like, or in like gritty sci-fi, it's like, this is a plot point and this is character development. And I'm like, but it doesn't have to be. You know, we, we, mm-hmm. it doesn't always have to be that, you know, so knowing that, knowing my philosophy on that versus how many people, you know, are survivors of it. I'm like, this is not something we really want in our game, but it's not something I want, but let's also check with the group and make sure that we're all on the same page. You know, it's like, and then mm-hmm. again, because we had such a, a, such a queer group, I was like, let's talk about, you know, homophobia and transphobia because we don't want that in our game. Because, you know, even though we have, we are a slight degree removed to our characters, there are still human beings behind them you know so like mm-hmm. there's a reason there's not really racism in my worlds because it's something i experience pretty much daily so i'm like why do i want to experience that in my fantasy this is my power fantasy totally so you know just making sure with the group where it's like let's not go into these things you know and then mm-hmm. you know that's why if i do bring up racism in a game in a game it's a t i spoiler alert i use this as a teaching moment with my white friends where it's like hey white friends you're gonna experience fantasy racism now you know and mm-hmm. you know sort of like now you can use your empathy and be like oh man i as a as an elf am being discriminated and you you sort of get it a little bit you get that sting but like that's what session zero is for it's like do we even bring that up because like this and this group was like nah let's not i was like great let's not then it's not gonna happen and that's um that's important to me to make sure that you know like like good bdsm and good theater you know you make sure the boundaries are set so that everyone can have the maximum enjoyment 
thing at the end of the day it's a game and we're here to have fun and tell a story you know and session zero and that sort of negotiation the sort of verbal contract explains to us how far we can go in certain areas and I believe in collaboration, you know, there there is also, it's very helpful for me because when you look at building a world from scratch, you have an infinite number of doors and so forth, you're sort of, therefore you are, it's, I call it the paralysis of limitless choice where it's like you have every option mm-hmm. and therefore you don't know where to go. And it really helps for people to start closing doors for me because then I can start to see the what shape it's going to take. And then I say, okay, these are doors we can traverse. These are pathways we can take to tell this story. And so with this group in particular, you know, building the world, they were like, we had four very disparate sort of characters who were sort of loosely tied to each other. So I thought, that's why I thought, oh, let's build a sandbox because there is no one unifying plot that will pull all of them together immediately. But I bet we'll find it if I just give them something to play in. And it was about mm-hmm. sort of juggling what everyone needed from this world that had, that I had built the skeleton for. But they filled out. They they put the meat meat on it, right? And so then together we were putting the skin. Right? That's a weird metaphor for our Frankenstein world. But like um, session so session zero is just like is is the contract for me it's like what are what can we do what can't we do as a group and like understanding in a weird way i feel like i need to explain it like just because we can't do it doesn't mean we've limited our freedom any like like it is it is like yes we can't do it but that's because we agreed upon it as a group and so it's not it's not some outside force saying like you cannot do this it's us being like we as a group have agreed that this is something we're not going to do therefore we all hold each other accountable in as part of this social contract and then safety mechanisms help reinforce that so we we've set our own boundaries and if we stray outside of them we know how to pull ourselves back in so as we were talking about earlier, um, you've you've played some PBTA games like Dungeon World. Um, you know the ins and outs of D and D, but Apocalypse World in this game um, was new for you. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of the things that you really dug about the system? Some of the things you maybe didn't dig as much about the system, um, or the setting, and what surprised you there? Yeah, um, I. I for the powered by the apocalypse games I always love their flexibility because for me a lot of it is less about the mechanics the it's like whereas D&D 5e feels like it's very much about the mechanics you know a lot of a lot of DMs will be like it's a combat simulator and I'm like oh, okay like I disagree but okay <laughs> um like I I look at the powered by the apocalypse games as very story driven you know and they um mm-hmm. and that's so all the mechanics in the game support the telling of a story if you try to play the game purely mechanically there are there's there's nothing there because it's like what is it like uh we look at some of the moves that each class gets you know they're they're like i I keep going back to vector because z stands out so much but it's like fingers in every pie that move doesn't exist without the framework of the world and it doesn't exist without the framework of the story whereas a a perception check in D D can happen it could happen in my room i could do a perception check you know yeah. Whereas, yeah. and then you look at like, uh, sort of the classes they set up, like the battle babe, the the Skinner, like the the way they set up the class system. Those can only exist within this world, and all of those character choices must be story driven. You know, it's like 
Because you look at it and you go, they've got some cool moves, but why do I want to play this character? What draws me to this character? You know, the why why am I drawn to play a hard holder versus a, an angel? You know, and because mm-hmm. it's it's even less about like, oh well, I want like if you take even like classic MMORPG, it's like, am I gonna tank? Am I gonna deeps? Am I gonna support? Like, you sort of take that out of it and go, well, what about this? Yeah, this aesthetic has drawn me in and what what it's more about what they can do in the world versus what their function is which is a a very like small Mm -hmm. distinction and so that was something i really dug you know and i I really did appreciate the creativity put into this the creation of that framework Mm -hmm. and the fact that you can then take that and shape it to your needs you know so like one of the things i think I didn't like was sort of the edginess, like the edge lordness of it's like, yeah, you're gonna have sex and it's gonna and like um, I was like, okay, like this is kinda a little red pilly for me, but like we mm-hmm. we take it and we 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 run with it in our own direction and we we wound up with a cast of cinnamon rolls like in the apocalypse. <laughs> and I, I thought that was a perfect example of like here's the framework that, and we we as a group choose what we accept and reject about it so we we rejected mm-hmm. the downright grittiness of it and decided as a group that we we were really telling a story about hope and surviving the apocalypse as a team rather than you know everyone's trying to kill everyone like we even you know assassins show up later in the in the session and they're just sort of like i'm just trying to survive i'm just trying to do my job like no hard feelings against you he's just someone wants you dead you know and it's like so even mm-hmm. even yeah. it's less about like oh yes i love the killing so much you know it's like they're like nope i just got a job to do and this just happens to be the skills i have which is <clears throat> what i think the apocalypse would be <laughs> and that's it's very hopeful i'm sure um but that yeah. is what we decided on really as a group it's like we want these kind of stories we want something more wholesome mm-hmm. despite the grittiness of the setting well uh, pulling back a bit to the the question of sex, which I know as a group um, internally, Nick, Percy, and I, when we were talking about this system, there was there were some flags raised about like there's a sex mechanic that feels weird. Um, and at session zero, um, we as a group were talking about like the things that we did or didn't want in the campaign as a group, or rather, y'all were. I was not part of that conversation i just listened in and loved it um but uh because of the very um queer and sex positive world that you set up there are a number of instances of like people fooling around with other people um in this campaign and it never felt like the way the sex moves are described in apocalypse world because it becomes very transactional in nature like explicitly transactional um i think that for a number of people has the like ick factor and that never felt true for any of the scenes where sex came into play in your campaign and so given session 0 i was surprised that we even like got to sex because people seemed it seemed like a there was some scudginess about the sex moves um, and the stuff. And instead, because of the environment that you set up and gave people like freedom to explore in a safe way, um, I thought it was like, I don't know, charming? Is charming the right word for that? I don't know. But it was like, it was really lovely to see these characters getting to explore that um, with NPCs um, in ways that didn't feel 
icky the way sometimes the game makes it feel like it should feel icky yeah i I feel like the game set it up to again be like very edgy it's like oh yeah in this world people fuck and i'm like okay cool like they do in our world too so like there's nothing special about that and so what i worked to do was sort of remove the the icky factor by being lighthearted about it and being friendly and happy so and that that was sort of like part of the the motivation behind sort of the sex positive you know where it's like sex positive doesn't mean like oh yeah everyone must have sex and like so in a sense we removed the power of the mechanic of the sex moves and made it more about the story that they were telling so it's like hey you're flirting real hard with this person and they're like oh yeah i want to go to your bedroom and then fade to black you know like we're not be like now describe everything you did in excruciating detail for the podcast listeners like that's that's not what we wanted (laughs) so right 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 right, right. and and that's why i think we talked about uh veils and lines you know where it's like in the session zero where it's like if we do get to an instance where sex happens we all know that I'm not going to be like, now tell me what they smell like. It's going to be like, it's it's like there's going to be a veil. We're going to, we both agree that you and this NPC have gone off somewhere to do whatever you do in private, you know, and it it might be, it's whatever you want. It might even just be cuddling. I don't know, you know, but yeah. because we've drawn they that veil. Just ve- hold hands and cuddle, it's fine. Yeah, but we drew the veil there, so that becomes respecting the privacy of that character as well. You know, mm-hmm. and, I th- and by respecting the privacy of that character, I think we respect the privacy and wishes of the player. Because again, there's such a thin line between character and player. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of like, I mean, think about it like this. Like in real life, if your friends are like, okay, we're going to go have sex now. Do you be like, I want to follow you and record in detail everything you do? Like, we don't do that typically. No kink shaming right, if right, you do, right. you know, if that's your thing. <laughs> but it's like, you know, that we respect our friends' privacy when it comes to sexual matters. And if they choose to tell us, they have chosen to tell us. We are not asking them to, you know. And so I, right. I feel the same way about right. characters. It's sort of, you know, the, the violence is inherent to the game because there is a whole, there's a lot lot of mechanics about combat and vehicle combat and this that and that's like that's where we can get our action spice you know watching these these characters be you know heroic and and swashbuckly and and murdery <laughs> um but like the, the sex is not agreed upon in the same way so like let's let's give them the privacy they deserve you know totally totally and we talked about this a little earlier and Again, we're recording this after the campaign has finished recording. But can you talk a little bit more about the John John Expanded Universe um, and these characters from previous campaigns that might pop up in this campaign? Yeah. So, well, it began with the Dungeon World um, campaign where I built, like I said, the Six Kingdoms of Yulia. And I built a small pantheon. And something I was very proud of in that is that each of the kingdoms had its own pantheon of six but it was just the same gods with different names um, because each one had their own culture. And I was like, oh, so why wouldn't they, if they're all worshiping the same gods, why wouldn't they have their own names for it based on their indigenous languages before calling <laughs> you know? And so I also set up something called like the Circle of Archmagi, which existed. This, there were like nine Archmagi who existed sort of there. They were just there and they popped up once in a while to do stuff. And then when I built um, the world of Cathin, which was the next long campaign I ran, I was like, huh, I'm going to take Yulia, who was the goddess of justice, whom that continent was named after, and make her the central religious figure of this world. Like, there is still a full pantheon, Mm. but she is the most predominantly worshipped in this country that is like fantasy England. (laughs) 
Um, and some of my char- some of my players came from that earlier Dungeon World campaign into this one, so it was like a fun Easter egg for them realizing that oh man, these are the same gods. And then some of them, when they DM'd, were like, "Hey, I'm going to use my long lived character from that campaign as a cameo in this one." And so some of the characters mm-hmm. from that campaign started showing up in ours. And it was an Easter egg for the people who were there before, you know, and still, so that's that sort of like lenticular design, right? Where it's like the new players will enjoy them because they're characters. The old guard who have knowledge of the old game will enjoy it that extra little bit more because they have already a history with that character. And and so while I was running this two-year-long Catherine campaign, I was DMing one-shots for a bunch of other people. And, and different groups and I just started weaving it all together and making sure that they were all tied to this same universe so I have the the whole planet is called Glazia Utra right and then I did some astrophysical calculations to make sure it was in a habitable zone away from that that galaxy's star <laughs> and then like that solar system star so I could have a weird calendar of 16 months with three weeks each month and I was like okay gotta gotta make sure this all lines up in my head otherwise it doesn't work um and so while we were recording apocalypse world i was also playing a game of masks um which is another powered by the apocalypse game and so in my head i was like man i wonder if the our apocalypse world game is actually the future of my kathan world um and then the masks world is the future of the apocalypse world where like you know the world oh. is irradiated so superpower has become traditional as we've rebuilt from that you know so i was like oh mm-hmm. so that was it's like it doesn't quite hold up because of like locations and the like because our apocalypse world is you know dc is 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 uh, based in DC. And I was like, man, DC wouldn't really exist in this because America wouldn't exist. So if you dramaturgically pick it apart, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But spiritually, for me, it's very helpful because then I always have this world with the same sort of queer positivity, sex positivity, POC forward sort of worlds that constant and that, that unifying spirituality exists in the world, you know, and the, and it allows, you know, you know, you have your same broad scope of villains and heroes and people, everyone in between, but it's like, they all exist under the same umbrella. And so for me, it's le- it's like everything exists in the same world, which feels good. It just feels good. Because then, so we have a couple characters from the Catherine campaign who in new reincarnations show up in the apocalypse world. It's sort of my like, because mm-hmm. you know my 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 love of reincarnation, right? Where it's like, these are these are spiritually the same characters from Cathan uh, that were created by my player characters, who showed up in the apocalypse world. And when I told my players about it, they were so titillated because they were like, "Oh man, like this character <laughs> has a new life, like, but has the same motivation." So there's the character, you know, Angie, who shows up in Apocalypse World, who her main arc in Catherine was, you know, her original arc was finding her fiance. And so in Cat in Apocalypse World, she shows up. She's looking for her fiance. You know, it's the same character. She's got the big mole on her back. She's ready to. She's like. You know, southern accent, happy, go lucky, ready to go, ready to smash things if she needs to. You know, and same motivation. Mm-hmm. And she's just there. You know, and, and the characters were playing. You know, I told um, the people who created Adra and Isabel, who will show up later in Apocalypse World as well. I was like, they did not like you. They did not trust you at all. And they were like, good, good. They shouldn't trust me. <laughs> you know, it's, and it's for me like, 
So the characters in this world, you know, they'll likely show up in other games as well too, because now their their spirits sort of exist in this in the John John Joe universe. They are part of the is the zeitgeist, as it were. They are they are part of the world and they are part of its vocabulary. And so you know, mm-hmm. uh, a vector will show up one day. A Vance Holiday will show up in another game. You know, uh, a Sydney mm-hmm. and Phytotech will probably show up somewhere else in a new form. You know, it's uh, it's mm-hmm. you know it's it's. It's a way of honoring, homaging, and loving the characters that were created. And that, that goes back to my, my DM philosophy, which I don't think I stated explicitly, is sort of like, you know, it's be a fan of the be a fan of the characters. I always want to be a fan of them and I want them my DMing is designed to push their stories. It is to challenge them, it is to help them grow because I want them to experience things. And, you know, so it's it's trying to give as loving a mix of, like, fun things, of moments where they're awesome and moments that challenge them, moments where they're, like, they I want them to shine in every way possible. And I also want them, you know, like, you know when you watch a movie and your favorite character is, is messing up and you're like, oh, why? You're so much better than this. Like, I want those moments, too. I want people to look at their characters and go, why did you do that? Oh, you're so, I know, ooh, you know, I want all the dramatic moments and I want all the dramatic growth for the characters. So I build the framework of the world. People build their characters and then we work together to tell those character stories. I using the world and they using their characters. And I, I, that's what I want. I just want to further people's stories. I think that's a lovely place to leave it um, for today. Thank you so much um, for joining us for this interview. And we'll see you next week uh, when we dive back into Apocalypse World. excited. (laughs) Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percy Hornack, and Nick Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel-Dean. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nerds. Check out our cast bios on our website, DungeonsAndDramaNerds.com, and tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. <laughs>